Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today's movie on Weird House Cinema is the 1991 fantasy epic, Beastmaster 2 Through the Portal of Time. Continuing a tradition well, we've started on the show of covering the second movie in a series without covering the first. We, we have never discussed Beastmaster. In fact, I don't know if I've ever even seen it all the way through. What, but the first Beastmaster? I, I think I've seen like half of it. Oh, it's it's really good. I, I feel like I can say without uh, any doubt that uh, the original Beastmaster from Don um, uh, Coscarelli is just a, a solid... Um, uh, leather diaper movie. It's a solid, um, uh, you know, barbarian wasteland Conan esque motion picture with some awesome monsters in it, uh, some fun performances, and a great villain played by Rip Torn. Well, fair enough. If Beastmaster One is your idea of solid, I would say <laughs> Beastmaster Two is riven with holes. It's like Swiss cheese, uh, maybe about to crumble apart. But I had a good time revisiting this because I remember this movie uh, in that it used to play on TV when I was a kid. I think this is one of those ones that come on TNT late at night or maybe in the mm-hmm. middle of the afternoon on a weekend. And um, so the reason we picked this movie is that, Rob, we were talking about examples of this bizarre subgenre that existed from roughly the mid-80s to the early 90s. And the subgenre was this. You take your leather diaper barbarian or some other greased up fantasy muscle man who, uh, you know, exists in a world of swords and magic. And then you have him travel from his strife torn home world to the smog filled alleyways of modern day Los Angeles. Surprisingly, there was more than one movie with this premise. Uh, so I, I would say it's a variant on the standard fish out of water plot coming pretty mm-hmm. close to the format uh, that we talked about in our episode on the Nicholas Meyer movie, Time After Time, the format uh, we were calling Fish Out of Time. Except in the case of these movies in particular, the Beef Warrior is typically said to be traveling from some other dimension filled with wizards and demons rather than just from a point in Earth's real past. And I don't well, know exactly... Well, I mean, you can, you, can, you can make an argument, though, that... Uh is if science fiction is our imagined future uh fantasy is our imagined past so uh you know it it basically washes out there well it's debatable what's what actually happens in this movie itself because the title is through the portal of time but the characters in the movie describe LA as being an alternate dimension mhm and I don't know, I, you can check your history books for uh, anything resembling Arklon and Lirana and the Beastmaster, <laughs> and I, I don't think it really shows up. Well, you know, maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a time lost to history, right? Plenty of people today also describe L.A. as an alternate dimension as well, so I, I don't know. I guess so. Uh, so we, we were talking, I don't know exactly where this subgenre comes from, but it might all be traceable back to the the 1987 He-Man movie Masters of the Universe in which mm. Dolph Lundgren plays He-Man, he ends up transported to modern day LA for some reason uh, in his quest to defeat the evil Skeletor played by Frank Langella. Yeah, that uh that was a fun flick. I remember seeing that uh in the theater. I uh, some older kids took me, uh some like friends of the family and it felt uh it 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 felt very grown up in many ways. Uh, it was an interesting uh, <laughs> An interesting, uh, like it was, you know, a lot of this kind of dark stuff in there. They they really took the uh, the world of the of of the these action figures and the cartoon, and they uh, they, they played it do- downright serious at times. Uh, 
especially <laughs> towards the beginning and towards the end, because uh, you have all this like cool stuff where Skeletor looks amazing, and he has this just a, I would say the sweetest band of underlings and hinch creatures this side of Empire Strikes Back. It's got Meg Foster as some kind of evil sorceress. I think it's got Billy Barty. Yeah, Billy Barty's in there. Uh, you're playing a magical creature. You've got a lizard man. You've got a uh, you've got a beast man. You've got some sort of a big haired gnarly dwarf. You have a sword guy, uh, and then of course you have the sword guy, Dolph Lundgren, playing He Man in a costume designed by Mobius. I mean, what more do you need? <laughs> But I do remember, of course, the thing about Master of the Universe, you have that whole central section where they're dumped into our world. Yeah. And even at the time, I was like, oh, man, I kind of wish we could have stayed in Eternia. Like, I, I, that's where these characters should be. Why are they, why are they invading my world? Um, but, I, you know, you roll with it because eventually you get back to Eternia. You got to make it relevant. But, but <laughs> these weren't the only two movies. Amazingly... Uh, you dug up at least one other movie where there's like a where there's like a sword swinging meat man who ends up transported to modern day LA. Was that Time Barbarians from 1991? Yes, I have not seen Time Barbarians, uh, and I, I I suspect a lot of people have not seen Time Barbarians, <laughs> uh, but it is a film that that definitely exists and um, does not feature anyone I'm really familiar with. Mm. Um, but uh but it's it's time it, it's basically the same plot as what we're talking about here uh, some sort of a barbarian dude chases a bad guy to modern day, day la uh so it's very much in, in in keeping with what we're talking about here though you know a funny thing is that i just realized the third live action teenage mutant ninja turtles movie is basically the inverse of this plot so it takes like rad uh, pizza eating modern LA uh, heroes in, in turtle form and transports them back to like feudal Japan. Yeah, the, the reverse of this you see with uh, there's there's some military applications of this, right? There's uh, there's at least one noteworthy American film and and a, a Japanese film where you have like modern day combat units traveling back uh, in time and then potentially changing world events. Um, Speaking of, uh, of of such, there's a, there's a Hong Kong film, and I think who, this one's a very vague memory. Uh, it took me a while to find this film, but I believe The Iceman Cometh from 1989. This is about uh, Ming Dynasty warriors who get frozen and then wake up in modern times uh, and have to battle each other with swords. This is often compared uh, to Highlander and seems to have maybe been inspired by Highlander. And I guess we, we have to consider the possibility that the Highlander DNA is on all of this as well. Even though those the, the characters in Highlander, the immortals, are, are traveling through time the slow way, uh, they are, <laughs> they're still... Uh, some there's still a little bit of fish out of water stuff. Like the Kurgan never really adapts. Uh, he's and one of the characters in our film today is very much in Kurgan mode. Oh yeah, Arklon, played by Wingshauser in in Beastmaster Two, has strong notes of Kurgan. Yeah, I would say I guess I'm not giving Kurgan a fair shake. Kurgan does adapt to modern times, but he only adapts to like the violent subcultures of modern times. He becomes like a uh, a punk body modification biker. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's also interesting how many parallels you would find in in movies of this kind, because I feel like they've all got to have some similar elements, like your meat beast discovers rock and roll or some other pop music genre. They get into mm-hmm. uh, a dance club or they learn about rap music or something, and it's like, wow, this this music is like nothing I've ever heard. It frightens me. 
Um, and then you have a scene where the meat beast discovers pizza or chocolate or some other food of the gods. You have the meat beast marveling at the magic box that shows pictures. You have the meat beast terrified by traffic, cars, freeways. And then finally, I think you've always got to have a scene where your meat beast has an encounter with the local police and they're all like, oh, it's another one of these weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> if there are any amateur film historians out there, though, that, that know where all of this subgenre traces back to, is it, is it masters or is it is it something else? I don't know. At any rate, it is a it is a winning formula. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it doesn't always make for for great movies, it does make movies that win. I wonder what it does say about the sort of nature of the muscly hero. And this might be something that is explored in some of the the serious literature out there. Uh, you know, I was reading some of this regarding Hercules, but uh, you know, the, the first Beastmaster film, your your lead character, the beat the Beastmaster himself, is uh, you know it's played pre- pretty seriously. Uh, in this movie, he's mostly a doofus. Uh, yeah. So I wonder. There's probably something deeper going on there about our, our relationship to uh, to these uh, like hyper masculine images. Oh, I just thought of another uh, variation. This is not exactly the same formula, but it's kind of close. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's first movie, Hercules in New York. Oh, yeah. And re- to a limited degree, you can compare this to Terminator as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's coming from the future. Uh, he's uh-huh. And he's maybe a, more finely tuned to fit in. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's not going to marvel at the rock and roll and the pizza too much. But occasionally, he gets something wrong, like asking for a plasma rifle uh, at the, the gun store. Oh, yeah. Phased plasma rifle. Only what you see, pal. That's Dick Miller. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, Now, here we would usually give the elevator pitch, but I I think we've already given it, right? It's Beastmaster. It's L.A. What else do you need? Yeah, Beastmaster in L.A. That's it. Beastmaster learns valley speak. Beastmaster uh, learns how to party, you know. (laughs) So uh, I guess we should hear some trailer audio. All right, let's do it. Come through the doorway to another dimension. With the Beastmaster and the creatures he commands. Hey, rad. From their world to ours. It's the wildest adventure that time has ever known. Beastmaster 2, Through the Portal of Time. Rock and roll, baby. Rated PG-13. Coming August 30th to a theater near you. All right. So you're probably wondering, well, who are the fine people uh, who, who brought this vision to the screen? Uh, let's let's talk about the the people of note here. First of all, uh, the director and uh, and also one of the the mini writers uh, credited on the screenplay is uh, Silvio Tabit, uh, a Lebanese producer known for his involvement in such '80s films as Dead Ringers, The Cotton Club, Evil Speak, Fade to Black, and of course The Beastmaster, uh, the first film. He was also associate producer on Alejandro Jodorowsky's 1980 film Tusk. This is the possibly lost film about an elephant. And, uh, of course, he's, uh, he's noted for this movie as well. This is his only, the only time he directed or did any screenwriting. He's, again, he's mostly a producer. And from here, he'd go on to produce Beastmaster 3 in 1996 and the 66-episode cable TV show The Beastmaster from 1999 through 2000. <laughs> Now, I don't want to do uh, too much surmising because I don't know what went on behind the scenes here. But I do wonder if this is one of those classic cases of 
somebody is involved in the film industry and to the extent of putting up the money for films, being the the lead investor or the the producer in that sense. Uh, and then they're like, okay, I get, I get how this business works. I can be the creative director behind a movie. Yeah, I think there was something like that. Uh, like, I'm going to go ahead and, and skip to the, the, the two main screenplay credits on this, uh, because the first is Jim Wynarski, uh, who has a story and screenplay credit. This is, of course, um, uh, Jim Wynarski from uh, 1986 uh, film, uh, the 1986 film Chopping Mall, which we've discussed on the show before, also notable for uh, Swamp Thing 2 and various other films. And then uh, the other story screenplay credit goes to R.J. Robertson, who lived 1946 through 1994, uh, worked in the animation department on Chopping Mall and did visual effects on Buckaroo Banzai, Dreamscape, and Troll, and also wrote Deathstalker 2 and a few other titles. But it seems to be the case where I believe Jim Wynarski was going to direct this thing and then lost control of the picture and... I didn't dig too deep into this, but I think there was some bad blood here. Uh, I usually don't follow all those threads myself because I don't want to sour my appreciation of the film. You know, I want it to be uh, this fun experience, and I don't want to know too much about any kind of beef going on behind the scenes. Well, the the claim I read, and this was only hearing Wynorski's side, so I, I can't vouch for this being true, but what he claimed is that he, like, uh, worked on the script with the understanding that he would get to direct it. And then at the last minute, Tabit was like, oh, no, actually, I'm going to direct it. And then so mm-hmm. they got into some big legal brouhaha about that. And uh, and uh, Winorski apparently was able to extract some major money or concessions or something out of them in order to in order to let them proceed. So at, at any rate, if you're familiar with Jim Wynarski's um, filmography, I feel like you can you can identify some of the touches in the screenplay. Uh, I feel like a lot of this picture feels very much in keeping with uh, some of the things I've seen from, from him, especially Swamp Thing 2. I, I can easily compare this film to Swamp Thing 2. Well, I was going to say that the satirical elements of this script are way below the mark of Chopping Mall. Like I, I feel like mm. Chopping Mall is pretty sharp, pretty funny, uh, as written. And this one, it has actors in it that can elevate it above the level of the script, but the script itself is is pretty dreadful. <laughs> it is, uh, it's interesting because it is a, it's kind of a self-riffing movie. Uh, yes. there, there are characters in place who've, whose role is to riff on things. And uh-huh. uh, I mean, m- most of the characters come off as doofuses throughout. It's hard to th- I think of anyone who doesn't come off as a doofus in this movie. Um, but that's ultimately the thing I enjoyed the most about it. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. There, there is at least one major character who I'd say multiple major characters who riff on the film as it goes. One of them really works and the other really doesn't. But uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll come back to that. But this actually so the script is not very closely based on but partially based on a novel by Andre Norton, right? Right. Um, Andre Norton, who lived 1912 through 2005, born Alice Mary, Mary Norton, um, but she published under the pen name Andre Norton. Uh, I'm not super familiar with that. I don't know that I've, I've read any of her work before, but she was a pulp era genre writer and was seemingly quite prolific. Uh, I, uh, in 1959, she wrote a book called Beastmaster about a Navajo former soldier with telepathic links to genetically altered animals that ends up having adventures on other planets. Uh, obviously, <laughs> uh, very little of that was uh, adapted into the, um, the, the Beastmaster film from um, uh, Don uh, Coscarelli, 
and Paul Pepperman. Uh, they they wrote the uh, the screenplay for the original. But um, these these are apparently there are like five different Beastmaster books from Norton. Uh, again, I haven't read them. If anyone out there has read them, I'd be curious to hear your take on all of this. Well, you know, I, I also don't know a lot about Andre Norton, but uh, I know that uh, some of her works, like I think her Witch World series, involved blending science fiction and and like uh, magic, fantasy, sword and sorcery kind of stuff together in the same universe. Mm-hmm. And I would say Beastmaster Two does that. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> in that sense, I guess Beastmaster Two is more in keeping with the sort of uh, of uh, fiction that she created. Uh, and I'll, br- I'll briefly point out that there's also uh, someone named Doug Miles who has a screenplay credit on this, but I couldn't find out anything about them. I think this is their only credit on anything. Uh, but just for the sake of having another human being involved in the creation of this strange film. All right, let's move on to the cast. Uh, we got to st- start at the top. Uh, who do we have playing the Beastmaster, a man named Dar? It is Mark <laughs> Singer, born 1948. What do I think of this performance? I would say that Mark Singer shifts pretty effortlessly between the character's two modes in this movie, and they are very different modes. One of them is standard barbarian fantasy action hero, mm-hmm. and the other is a befuddled weirdo wandering around mostly <laughs> naked on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. Um I, I don't remember enough about his performance in Beastmaster, though. I've, again, I've seen it so many times um, to to really comment too much on this. Like, I wonder how much of the weirdness is just taking that character out of a, a fantasy setting and placing him in New York. Because mm-hmm. yeah, he often just comes off as this kind of like weird dude with ferrets, uh, weird, <laughs> uh, you know, lean, muscular, forty-year-old uh, with uh, oiled skin. Who and it's kind of a, an interesting balancing act because they'll have these scenes where he is at once uh, very awkward in that he is you know a fish out of water. He's in downtown LA, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, he is also perfectly at ease standing there on the street mostly naked uh yeah again we're just wearing this uh this this uh, leather um uh loincloth thing so like somebody turns on the stereo and it plays hair metal at him and mm-hmm. he's like befuddled and freaked out oh what is this it frightens and confuses me yes. but then in other scenes you know he he's wandering through this now house of the 1990s and and he like easily begins conversing and comforting someone about the the death of a parent yeah. and <laughs> it's just like this I don't know. Sometimes he's uh he's incredibly socially competent and other times he's he's out of his depth. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a it's a weird performance to to watch. He mostly comes off as a doofus in this when he's not actually like fighting. And even then, I don't know, an argument can be made. Now, Mark Singer is probably best remembered for Beastmaster 1 and, yes, Beastmaster 2, uh, along with the 80s V movie and the TV show uh, that followed. Uh, though we shouldn't forget that there also is a Beastmaster 3, uh, and Mark Singer is in that alongside Tony Todd, Casper Van Dien, and what? David Warner. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Two great actors and a uh, and a Casper. Yeah. So Mark Singer has worked a lot over the years, and I believe he's still active. Um, Stuff that stands out to me in his filmography includes uh, voicing the Man-Bat on Batman the Animated Series. Oh, wow. 
and he's that was a good lead. episode. Oh yeah, yeah, I enjoyed those uh, those episodes. Uh, there's also the 1997 film Lancelot, Guardian of, Guardian of Time. Uh, he was op- he's the hero opposite John Saxon in that. Listeners, like hardcore listeners to the show, might remember that we heard uh, from another listener. Uh, who worked on this film and was almost killed by John Saxon during one of the stunts. <laughs> that may be a, might be a slight exaggeration, but yes, they, I, like a sword came in their direction, right? Yes, but everybody was okay. Yeah. So anyway, Mark is in, he's in great shape in this. Uh, we've got to give him that. And he's, uh, I feel like he does everything that is asked of him in this, of, of this film. I feel like that's something I can say for most of the cast. Uh, did they, did they perform, what they could with what they were given. Did they even excel uh, in their roles given what they were given? I I would say yes. Okay, I guess from here we should move on to talking about, I, I would argue, our two characters in the movie who both function simultaneously as actors within the plot and sort of characters on the satellite of love riffing the movie as it goes, except they're mm-hmm. in it. Uh, and those would be Carrie Wurrer playing Jackie Trent and Sarah Douglas playing Lirana. Which do you want to talk about first? Uh, let's talk about Carrie Wurrer. Uh, okay. Again, plays Jackie Trent, who is our party girl who ends <laughs> up uh, sucked into the plot of this movie. So uh, Wurrer was born in 1967. This was only her third film role following Fire with Fire and The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. But she went on to be in a whole string of interesting things. She played Abigail Arcane on the Swamp Thing TV show for 10 episodes in the early 90s. Uh, She went on to act in 1996's Thinner. And she was in 1997's Anaconda. Oh, boy, she is in Anaconda. I think she gets eaten by an anaconda. I would hope so. I mean, if you're you're in Anaconda and you don't get uh, et by a snake, um, you know, what are you doing? No, wait a minute. Now that I think about it, actually, she maybe maybe she maybe gets murdered by John Voight. Well, that that's good enough. Yeah, that's <laughs> a similar fate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she worked regularly after that uh, with runs on Sliders and General Hospital, uh, but she was also in Hellraiser Debtor from two thousand five. Mm. <laughs> and she was in two, not one, but two prophecy films the same year, Uprising and Forsaken. Uh, I'm sad to say neither of those had Christopher Walken in them at all. Mm-hmm. And she's mostly done a lot of voiceover work uh, in, for animated projects uh, recently. So I got to be honest and evaluate the performance. I don't think it's entirely Carrie Wurr's fault. I think a, a lot of it is in the the lines given to her and how she was clearly instructed to perform this character but I would say her character, Jackie Trent, is intensely annoying in this movie. There were uh, groans aplenty in, in our house as, as the movie was uh, being screened. Yeah. Um, uh, there, I certainly groaned some watching it by myself. But on the other hand, I don't know if I'd want a, a real strong performance here. You know, like, <laughs> like there are scenes where she's threatened by our main villain, but mm. you never really buy that she's in danger. Like those scenes don't feel very terrifying in part because of her performance. And I don't know that I would want that scene to be terrifying. No, um, she's sort of, sort of flippantly uh, uh, riffing and reviewing the movie as it goes on. So she's not, she doesn't ever feel very in the plot, which is good. I mean, that works for how silly this movie is, but I would say there's another character who sort of does that, but does it so well that uh, the, the, this character kind of fades back. So the other one is Sarah Douglas playing the character Lirana, a sorceress. And I would say this is the breakout character of the movie. Sarah Douglas is by far the best actor in the film. 
And she makes her character a lot of fun, despite the dreadfully cringy writing. I would say this is a classic example of a great actor really elevating their role uh, uh, above what it would be just on paper. Oh, yeah. She's she's really good. Um, so she was, uh, Sarah Douglas was born in 1952, probably best known uh, for playing General Zod's underling Ursa in Superman 1 and 2. Uh, but she was also in Conan the Destroyer. She played the uh, the evil queen in that. Uh, she's still active today, mostly in voice work, but she's been in a ton of weird stuff over the years. She played Dracula's wife opposite Jack Palance in 1974's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to see that now. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, a- I haven't seen that, but I don't remember Dracula's wife from the book. Uh, I mean, of course I love her in the Superman movies, but I guess there's so much going on in those. She stood out less in a bad movie like this. She really just like beams like the sun. Uh, So now I want to see all of Sarah Douglas's movies. I've got to see her as Dracula's wife. (laughs) She is, uh, of course, also in Jim Wynarski's The Return of the Swamp Thing from 1989. She pops up in Puppet Master 3. Meatballs 4, Return of the Living Dead 3, uh, and also 1993's Quest of the Delta Knights, which, of course, famously stars David Warner in two different roles. Uh-huh. So I would say her legacy is assured. We're not worthy. All right. We, uh, it's just, she's, uh, she's an interesting character because she's also not a pure villain. She's kind of a tweener, right? She's, yeah. uh, she's in it for herself. She's having to work twice as hard as these other characters to, to uh, achieve what she needs to get. Uh, our main, like, just pure villain... It's played very straight. Uh, it also comes off as a doofus plenty of times, but this character is never quite winking at the, the camera. This is the character Arklon, played by Wingshauser. I'd say this is another standout performance in the film. Our, our, our villain duo are, are clearly the highlight for me. Uh, Sarah Douglas is that ray of sunshine, and Arklon is just the glowing pits of hell. <laughs> yes. Oh, Wingshauser. There is so much Wingshauser in this film. Um, and it's it's probably not surprising that he has a screenwriting credit as well. Um, so maybe those two are connected. Yeah. Because um, he's probably like, I, I like this, but I think this film need, needs more arc line. Uh, I, I'll have some pages for you. Well, yeah, you know, this movie does something very well. And despite all of our criticisms and being honest and, and uh, having to say, you know, a lot of things about the script are not so good. Um, it, it has villains in a silly movie where the actors fully commit to going over the top. Like they're not Mm -hmm. trying to be cool. They're, you know, they're, they're not trying to say, Oh, I I don't want to look too silly. They're, (laughs) they're just going for it. And that, that works. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, Wingshauser goes for it in this. Um, So uh, this is the son of Hollywood Disney director, Dwight Hauser, the father of actor Cole Hauser. If anyone's seen a Cole Hauser movie, I think he shows up in, uh, in uh, Fast and the Furious movies at some point. Hmm. Oh, that, maybe that's right. Uh, Wings, if you're wondering, was a nickname he earned in high school sports. Uh, this apparently is referring to the wingback position in football. I'm not sure what that means, uh, but that's where it comes from. And he was also a musician for a spell under the name Wings uh, Livinright, putting out <laughs> the 1975 album your Love Keeps Me Off the Streets, which uh, has a wonderfully dorky album cover. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Your Love Keeps Me Off the Street. That doesn't sound like a healthy relationship. I feel like there's some imbalance going on here. You could make a poster for Beastmaster 2 that's like, that's Mark Singer saying that to his ferrets. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, Wingshauser uh, is notable for, he's been in a lot of things over the years. Uh, he played the violent pimp Ramrod in Gary Sherman's Vice Squad from 1982, a film that he also sang the theme song for, Neon Slime. Uh, he's had notable roles in such films as uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance. He pops up in The Insider, I think playing a big tobacco lawyer. Uh, he's also in Tales from the Hood, Watchers 3, uh, Mutant, and uh, a movie uh, called The Wind. Uh, Mutant has been featured on Rift Tracks before, and The Wind has been on my radar uh, for a while. That, that's one that looks kind of interesting. Mm. Wingshauser has a distinctive screen presence that I, I, was, I was working hard trying to figure out how to describe because... You oh, could, wait a minute. You didn't, you, it seems like you nailed it in your very first comment to me. You texted me just the <laughs> phrase toothy egg. And I yes. was like, yep. Yeah, to, toothy egg, I think it, that does encapsulate it. But um, he's, like, it's easy to think, okay, there's a little bit of um, Gary Busey to him. You know, like maybe he's like a, a, a discount Gary Busey, but it's it's more than that. He's He's great at portraying this kind of unhinged turbo jock. You know, he has that kind of physicality. Uh-huh. Uh, but he also has, yeah, this largish head and a smile that's just a full upper dental exam. Like when he <laughs> smiles, you can see all of his upper teeth. And it makes for just a wonderfully sadistic smile. I think if he had ever actually shaved his head, first of all, he would have looked like a toothy egg. But he would have looked a lot like drawings I've seen, interpretations of the character Judge Holden from Blood Meridian. Yep. He's also he's also a big guy, which helps. Tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's I think he's I looked up his height. I was like, how big is this guy? And I think he's only six two, but Oh, okay. But in movies, you know, a lot of times you're working on opposite actors that are, are really not that tall in stature. Mm-hmm. So you can still tower over somebody. Oh uh, he seemed bigger to me. Yeah. Uh not like what Vince Vaughn is really tall. Like like it probably interfe- like they have to use special effects to get oh, Vince okay. Vaughn. I've never shot. measured him. I think no. I, I've just read that he's like six, like six eight, six ten, something <laughs> like that. I don't know. I think he's still growing. He's like a reptile. Vince Vaughn's as tall as Michael Jordan. <laughs> uh, one more thing about uh, about Wingshauser here is yes, he has a screenwriting credit on Beastmaster too, um, and he also uh, this wasn't his only uh, time. The only time he uh, contributed to a screenplay, he also contributed to the screenplays of Uncommon Valor, No Safe Haven. And Skins from 1994, which he also directed. I've never seen any of the Wingshauser movies. Uh, I, th- I think you're fine skipping them. Uh, but he's pretty tremendous in this. All right, we have some a few other uh, players in smaller roles that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a couple of cops that show up. Because uh, you got to have cops on the scene to sort of be bewildered by all this barbarian magic that's going on in modern-day L.A. Yeah. And uh, they're both pretty fun. But the, the main uh, cop character is Lieutenant uh, Cobberly, played by uh, the, the always fun James Avery. From Fresh Prince. Yeah, yeah. He played uh, the, uh, the, the patriarch of the family, uh, Philip Banks. Uh, but, it, but more than that, he also voiced uh, Shredder on the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated series. Yeah, he did a lot of voice acting. Mm-hmm. I was looking at his credits and I was like, Wow. Yeah, yeah, especially some of the the shows from back in the day. Yeah, he popped up on a lot of those. Um, he uh, he got to play a Klingon on Star Trek Enterprise, ah. uh, but it did a tremendous amount of TV work going back uh, to 1980, I believe. Uh, he lived 1945 through 2013. In this movie, he plays a a weary, exasperated police commander who it's like he's so tired of de- dealing with like barbarians who show up through dimensional rifts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like the eighth one this week and it's just really wearing on him. Yeah. 
All right. Um, now, this is, we get into a couple of very small roles here, but they're worth mentioning because Robert Zadar shows up in this. I don't think he has any lines, but he's, you, you notice him in the background there. Yeah. Yeah. He may yell something. I'm not sure, but, okay. um, get but that's the extent of it. <laughs> he plays, a, his character has a name, Zavik. Uh, Robert Zadar lived 1950 through 2015, uh, low-budget B-movie legend, uh, this man. Uh, the, he's the, the, the man with a million-dollar chin. It's kind of shocking that it took this long for us to cover a film that has Robert Zadar in it. Uh, he's probably best known to horror fans as the original Maniac Cop. MST3K fans will know him best from Soul Taker and Future War. And mainstream fans might remember him from playing, uh, 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 I think he plays like a, uh, a criminal or some sort of a heavy in Tango and Cash. But he was in all sorts of low-budget movies, including the excellent Samurai Cop. He's the, the main antagonist in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also has a role in uh, Cherry 2000, which is a lot of fun. Uh, a memorable character actor, uh, in part due to... Um, his uh, uh, cherubism, which was a medical condition that resulted in that enlarged jawline that he has, sometimes more pronounced in certain roles and certain times in his life than others. But uh, he was certainly one of a kind. Uh, when Sadar shows up on screen, you know what you're dealing with. Yeah, if he's in the fight, you know the hero will not win unless it's in the last five minutes of the movie. <laughs> now, another um, character actor with a very distinctive look that pops up towards the end in a role that we'll describe uh, later on, uh, Michael Berryman uh, appears in the film. Michael Berryman was born 1948. Uh, He was born with um, hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, a rare condition characterized by the absence of sweat glands, hair, and fingernails. He has over 100 screen credits, including memorable roles, of course, in Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes from 1977, uh, another memorable role in Weird Science from 1985. He's in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He pops up in Star Trek The Voyage Home, uh, The Barbarians from 1987, and so much more. Uh, He has a really fun role in an episode of Tales from the Crypt, playing a creepy vampire hunter opposite the, the very likable vampire played by Malcolm McDowell. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Maybe, maybe I'll have to check it out. Yeah, The Reluctant Vampire is the name of it. It's, it's pretty mm. fun. Well, it's interesting that they pull, Berryman barely has a role in this movie. It's just a cameo. So it almost mm-hmm. seems like they were just trying to pull in recognizable uh, people from other genre movies just to, you know, for a day or something to say, yeah. hey, uh, will you be in the scene? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because someone like Berryman is certainly legendary now. And uh, and even at the time, I, I think uh, when they were putting this together, it's like, oh, we should get Berryman. Yeah, let's, let's bring him in. And and really, with our, our next uh, cast member to mention, again, this is a bit part, playing scientist number one is Dick Warlock. I didn't even notice him. Yeah, I, I noticed him only because I knew to look for him. Uh, but this is, of course, the stuntman and actor uh, best known for his work on various John Carpenter projects, including turns as Michael Myers and, of course, a killer android in Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Tom Atkins, like, punches him in the stomach and a bunch of orange juice comes out. Yeah. I think Dick Warlock does have a line in this. I think he's the scientist who yells something when the, uh, our, our, uh, our villains steal something from him. Uh, and then finally, Frank Welker, the legendary voice actor, uh, born 1946, uh, is credited with several uh, roles. I believe these are all animals. So anytime you hear an animal screeching or growling or whatever in this film, it's probably Frank Welker in a sound booth somewhere. And that's exactly what you should think about when those sounds occur. Wow. 
Well, I got to say one of the most hilarious recurring things in this movie is when Mark Singer himself <laughs> would screech like an eagle to get yep. his eagle's attention. Every time it happened, it was a, a fresh delight. Finally, I'll say that the music for this film, while nothing that really stands out to me, but also something, the weird thing is this was a soundtrack that was released on CD. So many, we've touched on, on far more interesting scores that never had any kind of release, but this one was released. Uh, it's from Robert Folk. Uh, born 1949, TV and film composer who worked on Ace Ventura 2, The NeverEnding Story 2, Van Wilder 2, Boy's Life 2, Lawnmower Man 2, and uh, Police Academy 2. Though to be fair, he did like seven Police Academy movies. So um, <laughs> He also scored the 1982 uh, J.S. Cardone movie, The Slayer, which I've mentioned on the show before because it takes place on George's own Tybee Island. It seems like that comes up every episode now. What? I know. I'm going to have to break down and watch it again. Okay, but only I know I should only watch it if I go back to Tybee Island. It's really it's it's best it's best uh, uh, experienced if you have some connection to the the place where it's filmed. So I guess if it's time to talk about the plot, Rob, I'm going to say before we get to anything else, I, I don't know if you noticed the same thing, but for most of the runtime of this movie. It does not have enough colors in it. There are mm -hmm. long stretches where basically everything on screen is some shade of orange. And then finally they go to L.A. and then there are a bunch of colors and it's great. But like the scenes that take place in the fantasy realm are just like orange on orange on orange. And it really starts to wear on the eyes. Yeah, I mean, it is a desert wasteland world. So I guess some of that makes sense. But okay, so to address the beginning, uh, uh, the, the film opens uh, on a setting sun, on a horizon of sand dunes, everything's orange, uh, and we see a text crawl in orange text saying, In the days following the death of King Zed, a darkness has fallen over the land of Arak. Oh, I forgot the land had a name. I've just been calling it like Desert World or Beastmaster mm -hmm. World. Okay, it's Arak. Uh, it says, the evil warlord Arklon, using unholy magic, has enslaved the people. Their only hope rests with the rebel forces marshalling in the east under the leadership of Dar, the Beastmaster. <laughs> I have to say that this movie hilariously, at times, puts in a little extra work to connect itself to the story of Beastmaster 1. Uh, when really it's it was totally unnecessary. I mean, this is a movie yeah. in which at one point in L.A. the Beastmaster drives is 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 riding past a movie theater, and the movie theater on the marquee it says Beastmaster Two through the portal of time, um, and, yes. and he and he and he comments on it like that's this is the level of movie this is. You really don't have to work too hard to stitch it into the plot of the previous uh, installment. Also, doesn't it retcon like doesn't it take characters that were killed in the first Beastmaster movie and just they're alive again? Um, like maybe some of the animals, yeah. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I read. Yeah, so it's weird that so at times they they're throwing in extra lines to to sort of connect things and like does it really matter that the villain and the Beastmaster are brothers? I don't know. It just gives them something to talk about while swinging swords, I guess. Did you notice that the the title, when it pops up, it says Beastmaster 2 through the Portal of Time, it looks like a title that would be printed on the side of an arcade cabinet? Like, it looks like <laughs> it should say, insert coins below it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that when I saw it, but now, uh, yeah, absolutely. 
Like you just washed out on Golden Axe or on uh, the Neo Geo machine, and you're like, oh, let's give Beastmaster 2 through the Portal of Time a try. <laughs> All right, but the opening is you have a bunch of evil faceless warriors in leather armor, and they're bringing a captive into some underground lair. So we have a cave that's very orange, lit by firelight, orange rocks. And the the uh, guards uh, take the hood off the captive, and it is our hero, Dar. You remember him from the previous Beastmaster movie. And uh, how, how to describe Dar, the Beastmaster? I, I would say he is a baby-oiled muscle guy in a loincloth wearing a leather strap around his forehead. So it's under the hair, just going mm-hmm. around the head. And a cascade of blonde hair flowing over each ear. Yeah, surfer dude physique, surfer dude hair. And so these soldiers are bringing Dar before some kind of council of creeps. I, I didn't know who these dudes were, but they're these like guys in hoods. It kind of looks like he has to face the judgment of three brain guys from Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. And uh, they sit there and they, they scowl at him. And we get our Arklon reveal because Wingshauser walks out and sneers mightily. <laughs> oh, and also we get a brief glimpse of Robert Zadar here. He's one of the soldiers in the background and he's wearing a hat that looks like an upside down boat. Yes. Oh, and I forgot how quickly they introduce all the characters here, because the lead creep of the Council of Brain Guys pushes Dar's sword and satchel off the table in disgust, and uh, immediately we get a ferret reveal, because the bag falls to the ground, and then two ferrets squeak and crawl out of the bag. These are Kodo and Poto, our loyal ferret friends for the, the rest of the film. Yes. They don't necessarily do a lot in this film versus the the, the, the first film, but uh, but still, they're cute when they're on screen, uh, and uh, and makes for some some weird scenes with yes. uh, the brandishing of ferrets. Yes, no, uh, uh, no, no, they're good. I like the ferrets. They yeah, you're right. They don't do much. They do a bit at the beginning though. Yeah. Um, so the brain guy renders the verdict. He says the man named Dar has been found guilty of complicity with the rebels to overthrow the holy power of Lord Arklon. So, uh uh-oh, anti-Arklon activities, that sounds very serious. Uh, And he says, the accused has also demonstrated a knowledge of witchcraft and his ability to control the beasts of the field. So, sentence is death. (laughs) What hypocrisy. I know, but so Arklon, by the way, won't just take the win and have his enemy beheaded. He has to gloat for a while. And he does a gesture at at Dar. Is he doing the fig gesture? It kind of looks like it, but maybe he's just making a weird fist. Yeah, I'm not sure. I couldn't really make it out. I feel like it would be a strange choice to have the villain of the movie just do the fig into the camera. I mean, he might have, might have just been gesticulating just so hard, you know? Because, yeah. again, Wingshauser just pours it all into this role. Just yeah. constantly snarling and seething or gloating. Um, there's there's no subtlety to this character. And Oh, and he tries to, I think, tie it into the events of the first movie. Because mm-hmm. Wingshauser is like, so this is the Beastmaster who killed our priest Mayox and now challenges my authority. But was that Riptorn in the first movie? I believe that was Riptorn's character. I could be wrong on that. But yeah, Riptorn played a, a marvel. Also, you know, totally overacting and chewing up the scene, but in a suitably uh, Riptorn way. He was like the, yeah, the high priest. Loved to sacrifice children. Well, anyway, so one of the brain guys says, in the name of Lord Arklon, I hereby condemn you to eternal damnation. And I was like, what? He can do that? That, Wow. Well, he can say it anyway. So Dar just stares at everybody in the scene. He doesn't talk. And they take him up to some kind of altar where they're going to decapitate him. Uh, you know, they, they bring up the, the Jack Ketch of Arklonia. 
And uh, just before the axe falls, Dar is rescued by his loyal beast buddies. So his tiger, Rue, attacks the guards. And then he's got two ferrets, Kodo and Poto. They're the ones that crawled out of the bag earlier. They gnaw the ropes off of his wrists. And he's got a pet eagle named Shirak who flies around squawking at things. And there's a big fight scene. Eventually, it comes down to Dar and Arklon. And Arklon has a secret weapon that he uses throughout the entire movie. So maybe we should know the name of it. Is this, Rob, is this the key of Magog? I think they only say the name of it once. Yes, this is the key of Magog. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool. It's like, uh, it's not, not your typical wand. It has um, like a, a laser emitter on both ends, and then they shoot l- lasers together, which can join into a single being. He seems to have, there's different settings. Like sometimes he seems to have it set to stun. Other mm. times he has it set to open giant flaming crack in the earth. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how the interface works here. He can summon winds out of it. Sometimes he shoots a laser, but it's not a laser. It like creates a storm. Yeah. Uh, but when faced with this laser weapon, Dar pulls out his secret weapon, which is going ah! squawking like a bird <laughs> at his eagle. Uh, this hilarious activity that he repeats many times in the film. And then the eagle flies in and and just gashes up Arklon's face really good. Just mm-hmm. claws out, destroying Arklon's beautiful visage. And every scene after this, Arklon wears a Phantom of the Opera mask. Yes. But Dar and his, his animal buddies escape. They get out of the stone fortress, ride off into the desert, pursued by Arklon's guards. And in the next scene, we meet the rebels that Arklon is so worried about. And once you see them, I don't know. It, I don't know if it seems like he should be all that concerned. These guys do not appear to have it together. They are like a gaggle of confused men wandering around in the desert, awkwardly holding plastic swords. Yeah. <laughs> But they do have one ace in the hole, which is custody of, quote, the witch, who is the sorceress Lirana. And this is our introduction to to Sarah Douglas. Again, I think the best actor in the movie by a mile. Uh, when we were watching this, Rachel said, wow, she really puts the wit in witch. <laughs> and I think that sums it up pretty well. She is, as we were saying, operating on a plane of reality above the rest of the movie. It's like she is riffing the movie, but also a character within it. So she's all weird jokes, saucy innuendo, and Austin Powers level one-liners. Like uh, seconds after her introduction, a rebel leader is skewered through the neck with an arrow. And she's like, mm, I guess he got the point. Uh, yeah, the first of, of many great one-liners from her. Uh, and, and she has some that she keeps busting out uh, just because they're so good. She keeps, she's, she keeps punching up her material. Yeah, she's like Roger Moore as James Bond as a sorceress. Mm-hmm. And I guess the idea, at first I wasn't sure if she was from our world, if she is from L.A., uh, but it seems like that's not the case. She's just... She's either visited it before or she's watched it through the time gate enough that she's she's hip to a little bit of what this other world is about and she's picked up some of the lingo. Yeah, I think that's right. I think she is a sorceress from the fantasy world. She's from A-Rock or wherever this is. and But she has been to L.A. many times, I believe, or at least watched it because she already <laughs> knows how to do valley speak. Oh, God, yes. But anyway, Lirana tricks the rebels into being ambushed by Arklon because that's her ultimate game plan. She wants to join forces with Arklon anyway. And we find out later that her plan all along was to uh, kill him and then take over the kingdom for herself. But uh, but at this point, she's just sort of like going along with him, I think, to, to make use of his army. Right. And uh, to, to manipulate him as best she can. 
I like one thing Wingshauser decides to do with the Arklon character is he starts cackling every time he shoots his magic laser. Like it's real <laughs> funny to him. Yes, yeah. There's never a dull moment with Arklon. He's just he's just always letting loose. The battle scene here has some really funny fake boulders. Like he uses the the laser to make the boulders roll, and they're almost perfectly spherical. Yeah, there's some boulders falling. It's it's pretty great. Yeah, but Arklon wins, and then Lirana, the witch, she makes her appeal. She says, well, yes, you have the power of the key of Magog, that's his laser wand, but you can't win this conflict without my help. Uh, and this is the scene where she not only makes the strategic appeal to Arklon, she starts using this excruciating valley speak. At one point she says, chill out, Lord Dude. <laughs> I love it. Perhaps perhaps the greatest line in the, the whole picture. Um, yeah. And, and, and he's all like, what is this strange tongue in which you speak? Yeah, and he keeps uh, like sh- like at first he he tells his guards it's like have her drawn and quartered, and then he like kind of tries to fake her out. And he's like burn her alive, and I kind of felt bad for the guards here. It's like oh my goodness, like both of those things take a lot of work. Like mm-hmm. this guy is such a fuss. You he can't just order somebody murdered on the spot. No, it's got to be a huge production that's going to just take up time and resources. It's a wonder he gets anything done. Yeah. But anyway, her pitch is that, well, he may be the most powerful man in the world, but only she can provide him with the power to make himself a god. And I think she knows how to appeal to Archelon. He is intrigued. So he, mm-hmm. you know, he lets her live for the moment and, and they're going to set up an alliance. And meanwhile, we go back to Dar and this is onto the swamp sequence, a very weird scene that feels visually at least out of place with the rest of the movie, but here's the basic rundown. Okay. So Arklon's guards still chasing Dar. They chase him into the swamp. Then they are mauled by some kind of horrible bog critter with glowing eyes that looks sort of like a cross between swamp thing and Augra from the dark crystal. Mm -hmm. Then swamp critter attacks Dar, but then stops and then it starts to talk and it gives him a whole speech. The gist of which is, uh, I am your aunt. <laughs> I was turned into a swamp critter because I did unholy rituals. Arklon is your brother and you have to defeat him or it will be the end of the world. I believe that, um, Jim Winarski has, uh, has commented that the, the original script or somebody I've I read somewhere that the original script was more based in the fantasy world and less in ours, if not mm-hmm. exclusively in the fantasy world. I'm not sure. Uh, but like, this is definitely a scene where that feels like an artifact of an earlier draft yes. that uh, maybe was more connected with things in uh, an earlier draft of the script. I love that. It's his aunt though. What a choice. <laughs> yeah. And he's totally surprised. He's like, I didn't even know I had an aunt, much less <laughs> that she was a swamp critter. Yeah. Uh, anyway, next scene, we finally get the portal of time reveal. Uh, so, uh, Rob, can you describe the scene? This is the scene where Lirana shows off the portal to L.A. Uh, to to Arklon. And Arklon, as he does many times in the movie, can't pronounce the words she's telling him from our world correctly. Mm-hmm. So she's like, the natives call it L.A. And he's like, L.A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Um and, and at first, he's not sure that this is an actual portal. He thinks it's an illusion, but he's, he's very impressed. And she quickly impresses upon him that, like, this is the place where you can really make your future. Because it's L.A., right? Uh, this, is, this is a place that, that, that draws many people who, uh, who are dreaming of reaching that next level of success. You know, some people want to get into the movies. Some people want to, you know, rule the world. And, uh, and that's where, uh, where Arklon comes in here. Well, yeah, she gets him all riled up about something called a neutron detonator, 
which is some kind of device that if detonated will destroy the entire world. Oh and, yeah. Uh, so, and she's like, they have it in this world, but you can steal it and bring it back to our world. And then you will rule with no challenge. Yeah. I mean, luckily she is just manipulating him here. So we can sort of, you know, dismiss a lot of the, the ridiculousness of this. She's just saying there's something so powerful. It can destroy a world here. Don't you want that? And he's like, yes, of course. That sounds awesome. Um, though, of course, in reality, uh, like I was thinking about this a little bit. It's like, okay, let's assume this is essentially a um, a nuclear weapon. If Archelon brings a nuclear weapon back to his uh, barbarian fantasy world, like the applications there are pretty limited. Uh, like you, right. you've got to have a very specific use of said weapon in order to really do anything in the world that um, that benefits yourself. Like. I was I was trying to think. Well, what what could he do? Like, yeah, I guess you could smuggle it into like a rival kingdom and set it off. Um, I think uh, at one point in the in R. Scott Baker's um, uh, 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 fantasy series, uh, there's a, a use of uh, an atomic weapon in a in a fantasy setting that that ultimately makes sense. Uh, like, okay, that that seems like the kind of thing you could do if you could, you know, position it in a place where uh, an advancing army might run into it. But uh, but otherwise, yeah, what's this going to do for him? Uh, and, and he doesn't really understand it either, though it is neat that when he first sees a car, he's like, oh, these these would really help us. And that ultimately makes more sense. Like you can imagine if he just had a fleet of trucks, that is something that could make a strategic difference uh, in the world that he comes from. Yeah, that is what he should want is cars. And in fact, yeah. yeah, he does see it. He goes, what an incredible machine with this. I could rule the world. And uh, and Sarah Douglas is like, it's called a car. And he says, a dar? <laughs> no, a car. A car. Oh, but also at the time they're looking at this portal, we get a peek at the other side and we meet our main uh, character from the the real world played by Carrie Warrer. This is Jackie Trent, daughter of a certain Senator Trent, which I think is also the name of a bad guy from one of those other bad 80s action movies that hard to kill or something. Hmm. Um, and anyway, uh, Jackie is a 20 something Californian who likes to party and likes uh, who enjoys reckless driving. And in the first scene, she is driving recklessly while speaking to her father on a mobile telephone. The police are in hot pursuit. She's trying to outrun them while she is listening to knock off Kenny Loggins. It is, uh, it felt very on the nose for me. It was like, you know, it was like, I am all good. Nobody be concerned about me. Yeah, I don't think they licensed, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think they licensed any music for this. I think all the rock songs and hip songs that we hear in this are uh, composed uh, by Robert Folk. Okay, that would make sense. They're, they're original for the movie. I mean, th- this just felt like somebody was like, can you create a track that sounds like Kenny? <laughs> I mean, missed opportunity to not get Wings Hauser to sing any of them, but yeah, fair enough. But as the portal opens up, she and the police that are in pursuit of her all end up accidentally driving through the dimensional portal, which on the L.A. side is just the dead end of an alleyway. It's just a Mm -hmm. wall. So she and the cops were planning on just driving straight into a wall, except they end up going (laughs) through it. Uh, And of course, they're immediately confronted with Arklon. Jackie drives away into the desert, but Arklon scares the cops into jumping back through the portal and leaving their police interceptors behind. And this is where we get the scene where where Lirana has to explain to him that it's pronounced car, not dar. Uh, but uh, so Jackie drives miles and miles out into the flat roadless desert in the dark, 
Her car runs out of gas, and then she just gets out and walks. Okay. Mm-hmm. And out here, she ends up meeting up with Dar, the Beastmaster. I think she is woken up because the tiger is licking her hand. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's it's one of those weird things. I feel like there are dynamics like this in other sort of worlds colliding movies where the character just doesn't seem to realize they are in an alternate world full of magic, even though mm-hmm. it should be obvious. She keeps saying things like, does AAA have service out here? And then she meets Dar. She's like, are you a biker or something? <laughs> oh, another one was, you know, she's like, um, my daddy will pay you to get me back to LA or even to just get me to a 7-Eleven. And he's like, uh, 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then he says, okay, you may join me on my journey westward. Perhaps there you will find the land you seek. So, of course, they're going to become fast friends because mm-hmm. this is – it's not exactly a buddy cop movie because it's not cops. But it's like a buddy barbarian movie. It's time buddies. Oh, and another thing I thought was funny here is so she gets acquainted to Dar and his animals, and she's like all impressed by uh, by the relationship he has with all the animals. Though so she's freaked out by the tiger, and she's grossed out by the ferrets, calling them rats. But I was confused by this because ferrets are not a mythical animal. There are ferrets back <laughs> on Earth. I guess you just never seen them before. Yeah. So like how some people grow up thinking unicorns are real and then you know they're disappointed to find out it's not the case. Some people find out that ferrets are real and it's I guess an, a magical time. Oh yeah, yeah. So they they end up scampering around all over the desert. Dar shows her how to eat roots to survive and she mm-hmm. says, "No thanks. I'll stick with the salad bar." <laughs> and uh and then there's a very weird and funny scene where Dar lets Jackie hold his ferrets. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those great creepy animal guy sequences. Um, well, one thing that is kind of neat about their relationship is, unless I'm forgetting something, they never set up any kind of like romantic uh, connection between these two. Um, Not really. I think there is a there is a brief and very chaste kiss at the end. She just kind of oh, like yeah, pecks yeah. him on the face, but yeah, otherwise it's just portrayed as a friendship. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, they wander around making friends, but eventually Beastmaster and Jackie are attacked by Arklon's goons, and they disable Dar with some kind of neon yellow little, like, gas bomb thing, and then they kidnap mm-hmm. her, uh, basically so that Lirana and Arklon can use her as a guide to the world of L.A. to show them where the supposed neutron detonator is. And in this scene, she's still doing her, like, riffing. She's like, what am I, in the Twilight Zone? And she keeps calling Arklon Leatherface, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, there's another point where I think, like, a random punk on the street calls him Darth Vader. Uh, yeah. so, and uh and he's of course he he's again uh wings are just playing the character very straight and is just all you know confused or bewildered or you know slightly angered by all of this but uh never really gets the jokes yeah he, at one point he's like leather face what do you mean <laughs> uh but of course uh they they go through the portal of time which deposits them in a dead-end alleyway and then dar chases them and arklon ends up trapping dar in the alleyway by blowing up a gas pipe that sends a jet of fire screaming across the width of the alley and i was like oh that's funny because i feel like that is a common uh method used to prevent your progress in a certain direction in a video game yes and you need I've to go somewhere else first. That before oh sorry there's a jet of fire here you got to go find a way to turn it off <laughs> get the get the key card access and you always have to shut it off yourself you can't just like call the gas company which would yeah. be the thing to do right uh well but so eventually the police show up in this uh in, in the alleyway. And so here's Dar with his animals and we meet Lieutenant Coberly again, played by James Avery of, of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. 
And uh, he, he again plays this weary, no nonsense police commander who has this creepy little underling in a bow tie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they, they, in a very sad, they, they tranquilize rude, the tiger, they shoot him with a tranquilizer dart and he passes out. And I'm sure that's very traumatic for Dar because Dar doesn't know about tranquilizer darts. He probably thinks his loyal tiger friend has been killed, uh, but never fear Rue will be back later in the movie. Uh, Dar himself gets tased and taken to the police station. <laughs> and then next up is, I would say, a, a real standout, one of the most memorable sequences of the film, the clothes shopping scene. Yeah. So thinking back on it, I, th- I know it's not really this way if you measure it, but my general impression in retrospect was that the makeover clothes shopping scene where Arklon, Lirana, and uh, and and Carrie Wurrer go into the fashion store takes up approximately the middle third of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it goes on for quite a while. We keep jumping back to it. Um, it's it, there's a lot of shopping to be done here. Yeah, and so they they go into a store. I think Lirana's like, we need we need clothes so we can fit into the modern world. And Arklon is, of course, just being violent and menacing in the men's section. But Lirana mm-hmm. is clearly interested in trying some things on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and she, then she of finds course, this like a smashing blue dress that she tries. Oh yeah, on, yeah. yeah. She's clear. She's all about fashion, and you know, to, she looks great. Uh, but the, also it's funny because Jackie escapes while Arklon is literally trying on clothes. He like yes. goes into the fitting room and she's just like, okay, out of here and runs out the door. And then when Arklon comes out and discovers she has left, he gets so mad and he destroys the store with his key of Magog. Um, meanwhile, Lirana runs out on her own in a fabulous new outfit, which I don't think she paid for. Oh yeah, I don't think so either. I guess uh, Arklon makes it out with this green jacket or overcoat that he tries on. Like he, he only tries on the one thing, but he he does seem taken with it. There's this great scene with him kind of, uh, you know, posing in front of the mirror, and uh, uh, it's a uh, it, it's a nice moment where uh, well, one of the many moments I guess where, where uh, Arklon comes off of this as a doofus, despite uh, Wingshauser playing the role very straight. Yes, um, uh, so <sighs> I, I like that moment. This looks wonderful on me. I look so terrifying in this green coat. Uh, but what I is this s- color? I've never seen it in my, <laughs> my home dimension. <laughs> That's true. In my world, we only have orange clothes. <laughs> uh, no, he he is wearing this green jacket. And to be honest, doesn't look that great on him. It's kind of a baggy <laughs> fit. It just doesn't look right. He did, he did no fashion. He did no fashion, Joe. There's also a an interrogation scene. So you you cut back to Dar in the police station, and uh, Lieutenant Coberly's asking him all these questions. But uh, in, in a true uh, mob movie fashion, Dar <laughs> keeps his mouth shut. He, he says yeah. nothing. It's like one of those yeah those scenes where like a real hardened criminal's like yeah I don't snitch I don't talk to cops yeah uh, <laughs> but I don't understand like where he gets this attitude like what, what like he he's just he, it's it's like we're in that movie but there's no reason for for the beastmaster to be that kind of hardened like what what interactions with the police is he having uh, back in his home dimension yeah and also I mean he's lucky enough that they went to another dimension where people also speak English so everybody yeah. understands each other why not just explain things to them. Yeah. <laughs> Try your luck. It would have been funny if he was just like lawyer. I want yeah. my <laughs> yeah. The demand right of counsel. Yeah. And they bring a lawyer from the fantasy world. It's like a guy in a druid robe. Oh, yeah. Like David Warner pops yeah. up. That would be great. That would have been Oh, great. it's one of the brain guys from the first scene. <laughs> uh, but he ends up escaping the police station. He gets into Jackie's car because she just happens to pull up outside right when he's leaving. 
And then here for a while, we get a big stretch of the movie where it just turns into Jackie and Dar doing fish out of time gags. Mm -hmm. So we get Dar discovers rock and roll. He says it's like an earthquake. He's kind of afraid of it at first, but then I think he kind of likes it. Yeah, that's how it goes. Yeah. And then Dar discovers fancy food. Uh, Jackie takes him back to her mansion where they meet uh, where they meet her, her snooty butler. And the butler gives them fancy food, and Dar is like, oh, it is delicious, but is it to eat or to look upon? <laughs> uh, then you also get Dar discovers daytime TV. Uh, Dar learns about cussing. It, it's, it's good stuff. You know, this does remind me briefly, another almost literal fish-out-of-water film that was a lot of fun. I haven't seen it in forever, but I remember enjoying uh, the 1984 romantic comedy Splash, in which Daryl Hannah plays a mermaid opposite mm. um uh, tom hanks mm, i've never seen it oh it, it's just like fun stuff where like she's literally a mermaid who's lost her legs you know very much uh, uh lost her uh, her fin her uh, fish parts mm. rather and you know has now has legs but there's a scene where he takes her to a fancy uh, uh restaurant and she orders like a lobster and she starts eating it whole <laughs> <laughs> great scene great scene. Oh, that's pretty good Oh, I like how Dar invites, you know, he's got his ferrets and he invites the eagle in and the, there, there's a great eagle versus butler scene. <laughs> uh, but eventually they end up watching TV and they're watching the news and they're, I think there's something on the news about like somebody's trying to steal a neutron detonator and they're like, <laughs> oh, it's Arklon. We got to go get him. So uh, the major scenes remaining are there's, there's a big heist scene with the neutron detonator with Arklon dressing up as a military guy to get into a secret base and nobody makes note of the fact that he's got a Phantom of the Opera mask on under his, oh, his general's hat. Right. Oh, and this was also when he steals the clothing for the, from the general, he also does some sort of telepathic mind meld where he steals all of his memories yes. so that he can better move around in this world. And it's one of these um, like third act magic powers where you're like, well, where was this magic power earlier when you first yeah. arrived in LA and were acting like a, a total doofus the whole time? Like maybe you should have used that then. And then also I was overthinking it partially because I'm watching the excellent television show Severed right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it made me think, well, if you absorb every, this guy's memories, like how does that work? Are those memories consolidated with your memories? Are you a different person now, now Arklon? You know, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like these new memories are compartmentalized somewhere. Yeah. Uh, They're downloaded and kept in a different file folder. Yeah, <laughs> that seems to be how it works. Oh, and I, so uh, Wingshauser and Sarah Douglas meet back up in the, uh, in the military base because she's there also in disguise, I guess, to help him. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there's a rift because he uses his new power again on her. Like when they're about to escape with the thing, he like grabs her head and he's like, oh, you were going to kill me and, and take over after, after we got back. So uh, I, to, to, to heck with you. And he throws her out of the Jeep and drives off by himself. And here's her sort of hero turn. She turns from the nominal villain into a nominal ally. She, she sort of hooks up with Dar and Jackie and is like, uh, we've got to stop him. Mm-hmm. So uh, because the neutron detonator has been taken, uh, the police end up recruiting this guy who I was just calling the Kablooey guy. What was yeah. his deal? Uh, he's like a retired general or something, but he knows how this device works, a device which, which is now ticking down. Because, uh, yeah. you know, Arklon doesn't know how this works. It no. is going to explode in like uh, an hour and then within a half an hour. And then it's going to apparently destroy the entire world. Yeah. Uh, and this guy is our, our only hope at actually, because, you know, Beastmaster can stop Arklon, but still somebody needs to turn this device off. 
but so it's this guy who just sits around saying like, <laughs> kablooey, kablooey. <laughs> uh, but hey, if you were going to guess, they go to L.A. and the Beastmaster has to have a final showdown with the villain of the film. It's going to be somewhere in L.A. Where would you guess it would be in L.A.? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many great places that it could have been that they probably couldn't have gotten the, the film rights, uh, you know, location rights to. <laughs> uh, but they decide to go like I don't know the tar pits would have been nice mm, okay yeah. but um, I, I feel like the choice they went with is kind of obvious because he go, they go to the zoo right it, I thought it was going to maybe be the, the Scientology celebrity center but instead <laughs> yeah. it is it is the zoo and Arklon joins up yeah they really they really play it for laughs though oh my god this zoo showdown uh, <laughs> like it made me think back to Masters of the Universe where we have all of our mid-movie fish out of time shenanigans like oh what are what are, what is the this food on these sticks uh you know uh, that that wonderful scene but then at the end of it we get this like traumatic this not traumatic dramatic it's not really traumatic i guess unless you're a, a big skeletor fan um this is this, this wonderful showdown between he-man and skeletor where skeletor becomes like a golden god and it's really splendid and like ultimately kind of like high fantasy and epic and and played mostly seriously here, though, it is a battle between Beastmaster and Arklon, um, whilst the animals watch on and hoot, whilst uh, an audio track dis- uh, uh, is playing describing a, a spiny uh, uh, anteater or something, or hedgehog, yeah. and, uh, and a lion. It's just all played for, for goofiness. Uh, and it's very goofy. Yeah, they have a sword fight. It's like the ground is cracking and full of fire. Like there's a you know volcanic earthquake underneath them. Mm-hmm. And, Cut uh, to a chimpanzee clapping and laughing. <laughs> yes, uh, but then finally in the oh, th- there are so many moments where like you know you got to have the thing where the hero gets the better of the villain or disarms them or something, and then they're like, you you can still live. And the villain is like, no, I must do evil and die. Mm-hmm. And so uh, th- that happens. Uh, I think I think literally Wingshauser says, I hate peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. There's uh, a there's a nut clutch in there. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. And then finally, Dar ends up throwing Wingshauser into the crack in the earth. And as he's plunging down into the fire, he just yells, the world is mine. Yeah, he's like, I am winning so hard <laughs> as he falls to his flaming death, which I believe is the same way Rip Torn's villain died in the, the first film, falling into a sacrificial fire. So uh, you know the they defeat the they get the Kablooey and the guy in there to disarm the neutron detonator and then uh, and then we get to say our emotional goodbyes between Dar and Jackie because of course you know she must stay in her world and he must return to his but Dar decides you know what Jackie and my ferrets they have become such good friends I'm going to let the ferrets stay so Kodo and Podo the ferrets are West Coast ferrets now <laughs> uh, oh and then there's a great stinger at the end which is uh, when when Dar goes back to his, his own uh, universe Jackie Trent's red sports car her Porsche is uh, sitting in the desert still and now it is an object of pilgrimage for the people of the Beastmaster world yeah, and this is this is where uh, Berryman shows up. Is one of the like the lead pilgrim that's talking. It's like, come see this wondrous device that was left by the gods in the desert. Yeah, we all want to know how it works. Oh, and then the desert pilgrims they learn how to dance after they activate yeah. the stereo system, and it starts playing hair metal, and you see them kind of like swaying. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, but, but then, wait, what, one last question I have about the plot. Do we ever find out what happens to Lirana at the end? I don't remember. No, that, that, I guess the, I don't know if the scene was cut or what, but huh. uh, I don't think she died uh, or anything. Sometimes you see that where the villain or the, you know, a villainous character has a hero turn, but they still have to pay the price for their, their misdeeds. But mm. I think she just vanishes. We don't see what, what happens to her. She's just living on in L.A. Yeah, and, and more power to her. She'll fit right in. <laughs> But the, the final moment is also a lot of fun. I don't know if you caught all the, the, the details of this, but the eagle cries, and Dar must now run off uh, into the sunset, uh, this you know, wonderful sunset in the, in the, the background here, uh, with his tiger beside him, you know, to fight another day and carry on adventures and so forth. But it quickly becomes clear, even as credits are beginning to roll, that this, uh, this sunset is, of course, a map painting. and. Uh. And the tiger moves up a, a little bit, but then stops and kind of looks around and then walks off screen. Meanwhile, um, uh, Mark Singer uh, in the Beastmaster garb has run up as close as he can and is basically just running in place for, <laughs> for I guess, the duration of the credits there, um, you know, kind of moving back and forth. But there's nowhere else for him to run. He's just running in place. Wow. I did not catch that. That's it's, very it's, good. It's worth going back and watching. Okay. So I'd say in the end about Beastmaster 2 – not a great film overall, but <laughs> but Wingshauser is fun. Sarah Douglas is transcendent. The ferrets are very cute, and uh, and this was a really fun episode of Weird House. Yeah, yeah, this one was a lot of fun. I'll, you know, it's it's a love letter to L.A. This film, uh, <laughs> but but also I will say that hey, if anyone out there is a Beastmaster one purist and you're like, I don't want any part of this film, traveling to L.A. No, uh, well, I want to just. I want to advise you, give Beastmaster 2 a chance because, um, you know, it's not Beastmaster 1. It's its own thing. It's goofy. It's, it's, it's dumb. Uh, but it is, uh, it's, it's tremendous fun. Now, unfortunately, there, are not a great, there, aren't, there aren't a lot of great ways to watch this film in decent quality right now. Uh, for instance, Vinegar Syndrome put out an absolutely beautiful Blu-ray of the Beastmaster a few years back. Like one of these was just you know, beautiful packaging and original artwork and so forth. Uh, they did not give the same treatment uh, to Beastmaster 2. Uh, I believe there is a DVD edition from Cargo Records. Uh, out there that you can you can easily buy at a very affordable price, um, but uh, so far that's it. There's no Blu-ray uh, release of this film as of this recording. But hey, hopefully, hopefully the future will uh, will prove me wrong. All right, if you want to check out other episodes of uh, Weird House Cinema, you'll find it every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're generally you know a science podcast. We're more concerned with say like the consolidation of memory or the um, or, or even the uh, speculative time travel and the limitations uh, involved there. Uh, but on Fridays, we put most of those serious matters aside and we consider uh, a film such as Beastmaster 2, uh, which, uh, you know, a film that, that may raise some of these questions, but, uh, you know, <laughs> d- does not require uh, intensive research to answer. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 